You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. So tonight we're going to be talking about the condition of, your, of the church and because of your first love. The church has far more influence of cosmos, which is the Greek word for the world, than we like to admit. And tonight we're going to look at some areas in which the church has been infiltrated and the warning signs to either correct or avoid. We're going to quickly pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity tonight to be in church, to hear your word, Lord. God, would you soften our hearts and help us to receive your word, Lord? Plant it deep into our hearts, Lord God, and let it stir up our souls. Lord, you are a good God, a loving God, and a merciful God. We thank you for your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. On the island of Patmos, the the trans-configured Jesus spoke to John about the seven churches described in Revelations 2 and 3. John would have immediately recognized these churches, considering he probably visited all of them in Asia Minor. And the churches, including the congregation at Laodicea, is the one that we're going to be focusing on tonight. After his meeting with Jesus, he writes to the churches about their spiritual condition. It's important to note that most scholars agree that these seven churches represent the history of the Christian church. If that's true, then the words given to the Laodicean church should have significant importance and apply to us as the body of Christ today. We are living in our finest hour. Christianity is flourishing around the world. The gospel is being spread in countless countries via satellite, television, radio, well-supplied missionaries who have reached the far corners of many countries and diverse ethnic groups. With such, con- with such thriving conditions in areas of diverse global ministries comes financial prosperity. Many venues have been able to capitalize on Christian merchandise because of the prosperity and how well Christianity is doing. Much like our satisfaction with our accomplishments, the congregation of Laodicea were content as well. The future looked promising for these Christians who were able to keep the faith and maintain a comfortable lifestyle. Why then did Jesus have nothing good to say about this congregation? For beginners, there was an obvious difference between his assessment of their spiritual condition and their own view of it. Laodicea viewed their inadequate condition in a completely positive light, oblivious to their true state. With the mentality of we are rich and have need of nothing, They saw their financial success as God's blessing. Naturally, with this positive mental attitude, they were not interested in any negative preaching. But Jesus told the Laodiceans something they did not know. His response to their delusion was, You say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, and poor and blind and naked according to Revelations 3 and 17, in his mercy, he exposed them. Luke 12 and 15 says, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
When it came to the feeble saints of the church of Smyrna, Jesus spoke differently of them. He described them as rich, even though they were poor. And then he highlighted the faithfulness of the church in Philadelphia, even though they were in the midst of persecution. The church of Smyrna and Philadelphia had little outward success, but they could have given Laodice, the church of Laodicea a lesson in what true Christianity was. It's doubtful they were ranked as a popular congregation. They weren't Mission Point or CCC, just saying. No. Um, yet these people were rich in God, while the Laodiceans were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, according to the Lord's assessment of them. A worldly church views success differently than Jesus sees it. The world sees outward success, large building and cushy bank accounts, hordes of idolizing followers. But the Lord celebrates the narrow path to the cross and the inward qualities of a godly life. Prosperity, if we aren't careful, can lead to spiritual blindness, creating a false sense of eternal security. Jesus prescribes something to cure this blindness. Truth can reveal the church's spiritual nearsightedness and can show any lack of reverence for God and how closely we are allied with the enemy. And this is what Jesus said about the Laodiceans. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Revelations 3, 15, 16. Back and forth the Laodiceans would go, first in love with Jesus, then in love with the world. This is mediocre Christianity. Although they weren't committing outright sin, they were not striving for holiness. Unfortunately, the church of the 21st century can fall into the same pit. We can manipulate the gospel to fit our own church cultures. Modern church and diverse denominations have altered the old-fashioned gospel to agree with their busy schedules and lifestyles by emphasizing certain biblical teachings and neglecting others. The tragedy of this new rendition of Christianity is that it makes no demands and expects no sacrifice, which yields no eternal reward. We've reduced the Lion of Judah to a declawed kitten. No longer seen as the Almighty, but a harmless icon we passively honor on our busy days. We sometimes treat God like he's our aging family dog that we allow into the church once a week, pat on the head, and then send back into the yard with a bone. We can sing songs of praise but hardly get beyond the emotion of the significance of them. We can cling to a form of godliness but have no power. We can honor him with our mouths, but sometimes our hearts are far from him. Sadly, we've idolized preachers who tickle our ears with nuggets of biblical truth, but that never step on our toes or confront sin. What is being preached by some is not wrong per se, it's just not full truth. It's an incomplete gospel, avoiding the parts that make people uncomfortable. While pastors who do preach about holy living are so black and blue from sheep bites, they struggle to press on, and many give up and retreat into secular employment. Don't be like that sheep. He's grumpy looking. He's a biting one. I think he was sheared too short. The more we elevate ear-tickling preachers into superstars, the more we become convinced of how right we are. When we believe only what we want to believe and hear only what we want to hear, when a godly preacher tries to bring things into balance, he's quickly labeled as unbalanced, 
Today's culture is being fed spiritual mush. If we continue to digest substitute, we will forget what real meat tastes like. Current culture and New Age Christianity have become so satisfied with its substitute gospel that people no longer hunger for the real thing. We eat just enough junk food to keep ourselves from getting hungry, and without hunger pangs, we never really feel the need for a full course meal. Our world is starving, and they don't even know it. Christians today are in the same crisis as the latest as the Laodicean believers, prosperity has weakened our daily dependence on God. Instead of asking, how can we rid ourselves of the poisonous influence of the world, we sometimes ask, how much of the world can I have and still go to heaven? The Bible tells us of a rich young ruler. We know that he walks away from the Lord with great sorrow because he was too attached to his earthly possessions and prosperity to leave it all behind and pick up his cross. He had more love for the world than he had for the Lord. Prosperity makes the human heart highly susceptible to deception. Like the Laodiceans who, who, deceived, who were deceived into thinking they weren't in need, the same power of deception can lead us into the danger of compromise. Jesus knocks on our heart's door and asks us to sell all. Now the all for us is simply the things of the world that have choked out the word of God from our lives and choked out our love for him. Colossians 2 and 20, the GNB version says, you have died with Christ and are set free from the ruling spirits of the universe. Why then do you live as though you belong to this world? We can find our way back to our first love, but we must start with an honest evaluation of our spiritual condition. Confession and repentance are still a vital part of our walk with God. It cannot be replaced. Our heart's cry should be the words in Psalms 139, 23, 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me to the everlasting way. There are men and women who are living holy and consecrated lives despite heavy criticism, trying their best to obey the voice of God that cries out, Come out, be holy, for I am holy. We are serving a holy God, and he's calling us to come out of the world and be holy like he is holy. Unfortunately, there is another deafening cry trying to drown out the voice of God saying, you don't have to be holy. There are church movements today that teach that you don't really have to fully obey God's word. You can pick and choose. Many pulpits, radio stations, and books give a false sense of security to the saints. They teach that those who do obey the whole word of God are teaching legalism with the accusations that preaching whole truth is somehow telling people that they have to earn their way to heaven and that there's nothing a person can do to save himself. It's all God's grace. As with most deceptions, there's usually enough truth laced in the message to make it believable. But the real threat is from those who are teaching Christians to indulge themselves in a selfish, worldly lifestyle, all in the name of grace. Which is a far cry from the abundant life Jesus had in mind for his bride. Satan works strategically in the last day without, without saying out loud or outright, sinning doesn't matter, because that would be too strong of a poison for a Christian to swallow. 
He instead concocted an entire doctrinal scheme that would allow for worldly living by leading preachers and teachers to overemphasize God's grace and downplay the need for holiness and godliness. The devil has made compromised living acceptable in the eyes of the average churchgoer. Paul warns in the end time, to the end time believers, he gave very important clues about what to expect in the last days when he said in 2 Timothy 4, 2-3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside myths. Now, I'm not Greek, so don't judge me. But the Greek word for desires, epithymia, close enough, is the same word we find in 1 John 2 and 16. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the world is passing away and it also lusts. In other words, Paul was saying in the last days, people will exalt teachers who provide them with teaching that permit them to live carnal worldly lifestyles while maintaining a facade of true Christianity. They will drift away and refuse to listen to truth. And today, the great emphasis on grace without real sanctification is what Paul warned us against in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, and 8, when he says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. James 1.27, I have a lot of scripture, bear with me. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one unstained by the world. This passage reveals characteristics of true Christianity. First, living out God's love to those in need. And second, a pure life lived out in a polluted world. We are not saved by works. Salvation results from a combination of God's grace and a person's faith, according to Ephesians 2 and 8. But that does not mean that we can do whatever we please after our conversion. Because the Bible clearly states in Matthew 16 and 17 that Jesus will recompense every man according to his deeds. He also said those who did the good deeds would be destined to a resurrection life, and those who commit the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. John 5, 29. Romans 2, 4-8 tells us not to think lightly of God's riches of kindness because God's kindness should lead us to repentance. We see that what we do with our lives does directly affect our eternal destiny. The first proof of conversion in someone's life is the continual growth in obedience to God. His life is characterized by an ongoing process and of growth and maturity. The old man and the old ways of the flesh are overcome and the fruit of the spirit begins to appear. This is the process of sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, according to Hebrew 12 and 14. The second proof of genuine conversion is a development of eternal perspective. Eternity should be the driving force at the back of a believer's mind. Matthew 16, 19 to 20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Our primary focus should not be what the world has to offer, but what waits us, what awaits for us in eternity. 
The final characteristic of authentic conversion is found in John 13 and 35. And he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God's love flowing through a person's life is the sure sign that there is true living faith behind it. Likewise, the absence of it should be cause for concern. Many people can sit in church but never truly surrender their lives to the Lord. Some get by through selecting what the book calls cafeteria Christianity, where they pick and choose what rules they can live by. People also, Paul, sorry, also warned that in the last days, many who claim to be followers of Christ would be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they denied its power, 2 Timothy 3. There is no power because there is no submission. Jesus used some pretty strong words towards the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He points out that their outward state, um, how their outward state was beautiful, but inwardly they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These words are just as important to us today because they reveal the danger of living by outward standards but not having a true change of heart. Outwardly they looked beautiful, but on the inside they were full of self-indulgence. No one likes to hear hard words. I didn't want to speak the hard words. But sometimes strong rebuke is the only thing that will snap a person out of delusion. And Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they, when they will not endure sound doctrine. Spiritual experiences alone do not provide evidence of conversion. People can sense the presence of God at some point in their lives and even feel his overwhelming love, but that does not mean that they are saved. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He also went on to say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and perform many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7, 21, 23. Basically, they did not obey God, nor did they really live for God. We have to be careful in savoring God's love that we aren't in a delusion ourselves. Although Jesus loved the rich young ruler, his response to that love was what would determine his eternity. Would he obey Jesus or not? The mercy of God brought him to a crossroad. The man had to choose between Jesus and mammon. The issue is obedience, not feeling. The person who has truly been converted obeys God from the heart and then becomes a vessel of God's love to others. Now we're going to take a look at grace. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting for costly grace. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without discipline, and communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship and the cross. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field where a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but not just follow anyone. It calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
And it's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. There's a warning to beware of deception and ambition at the top. It's vital that we learn to be discerning about what people are teaching us. We must pray that God will give us ears to hear and eyes to see. When we think of false teachers, we automatically look for wolves. When in reality, we should be looking for wolves in sheep's clothing. Many will fail to realize that false teachers appear as sheep and angels as addressed in Matthew 7 and 15. There will be those who will willfully lie to achieve their own selfish purpose. But equally as devastating are those who are not purposely leading the sheep astray. They spread false doctrine because that's what they've been taught. And they've unwittingly passed it on to others. And that's what makes the deception so powerful. It's the spirit of the world which now uses these preachers to present a more appealing message to those who are listening. It's a watered-down gospel with little to no fire in it. And it's false because it's not the gospel that Jesus gave. There still is, take up thy cross and walk. And the cross isn't always pretty. While many pastors and ministers do their best to help people, others are hard at work creating personal followers. They want big ministry with their name out front and themselves as the center. It's easy for people's motives to get tangled up in ministry. And that's why we must be ever so careful and proactive in our walk with God. False teaching is one of the side effects at making it to the top when that's their primary focus, while the desire for truth gradually takes second place. Paul said in Mark 12:39 how false teachers, teachers sorry, would rise up to draw away disciples after them. Some have drifted away from a servant's mindset and seek instead to be served, placing themselves, as the Bible says, in chief seats and places of honor. There is an intense competition to attract large crowds and the biggest audiences with fluffy sermons. Confrontational preaching that addresses sin, worldliness, and carnality head-on don't tend to draw large followers. And because of this, the typical watcher and listener rates personality higher than content. The authority Paul spoke with due to his, was due to his intimate relationship with the Lord and that was based on a deep life of consecration and prayer. Sincere love for others motivated him, not self-ambition. Once a teacher learns to trust in his own ability instead of humility and meekness, he adopts the attitude of confidence and swagger. And you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, she's beating us over the head with this stuff. But here's the thing. Be careful of listening to those who are more focused on their ability to charm you than telling you the truth in love. A worldly church is susceptible to worldly solutions. Now, please don't misquote me. I was nervous to go into this next section. Don't misunderstand me. Bear with me. It'll all make sense. Although we are not against therapy and medication, because we know sometimes these are life-saving solutions, we still need to take seriously the directions given by Jesus for true victorious living. The Lord wants us to set our minds on things above and seek the mind of Christ in all things. 
The problem we can sometimes run into is from our tendency to approach spiritual matters with natural reasoning mindsets. Romans 8 and 7 says, The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Humans are inherently self-centered, meaning our thinking constantly revolves around self, me, I. Jesus alone has power to bring a person into true joy and contentment. Learning that obedience is better than sacrifice will lead us into a place of peace. Many want help from God, but they want it on their own terms. They want the Lord to solve their problems without making any demands on their lives. Zap me and fix me is their prayer, but they are unwilling to submit and obey him. Some want God to take away their troubles without having to give up their pleasure-seeking lifestyle that can produce obsessive behaviors in the first place. It's impossible to have the victory of Calvary without the cross of Calvary. And the Bible says that the Lord has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 and 3, and that we are made complete in Christ, Colossians 2 and 10. So what will it take for believers to believe in his promises? Again, there are times that professional counseling is needed. I'm not discounting that at all. And we can give, they can give a person the proper tools to overcome their struggles. The only caution given here is that we need to be careful that we aren't giving a substitute for running to the Lord in time of need. Because ultimately, he is the only true healer. We don't want people to be misled into being rescued from coming to a place of desperation where they find victory, which comes from true brokenness and repentance before the Lord. It's our responsibility to use extreme discernment and care over what we allow into our minds. Don't let, Colossians 2 and 8, NLT, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. One of our problems is that we allow the influence of society, a society to influence us more than God does. Plainly speaking, our lives have been shaped by our culture more than God's word. We've been indoctrinated to pursue the American or the Canadian dream while failing to recognize that the spirit of cosmos, the spirit of the world, is driving our pursuit. From the time we were born, society has taught us to look out for number one, to be somebody, to get ahead in life, to fight for our rights, and so on and so forth. But because of this, it should be no surprise that after years of listening to these affirming messages, when a person comes to Christ, he needs the word of God to reshape his thinking and reorder his values. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have to come. 2 Corinthians 5 17. Centering one's life around entertainment is normal for the unsaved believer. Uh, yeah, for the unsaved, sorry unsaved citizen. But what about the Christian? Have we experienced true conversion if we go on living the same way we always have in light of what the Bible teaches? Christians should be citizens of heaven first. 
and citizens of earth second. Once we experience true conversion, we should be more concerned about the acceptable practices of our new life in Christ than those we grew up in. If we aren't careful, we can become so addicted to so many forms of entertainment that we cannot imagine our lives without them. Oh, don't turn my phone off. That was for you, young people. Uh, there's no shortage of things to entertain us. Card games, board games, video games, television, books, novels, sports and recreations, the internet, and so on and so forth. While most of these activities are harmless in and of themselves, the thing to consider is where does that leave time for God in our lives? The reality for many is that he has been crowded out. We don't like to admit that. For example, most lives have increasingly become centered around watching television. It's one of those household items we take for granted and seldom question its effect on us. Most people are already TV, internet, and social media addicts. When a person spends hour each week viewing stories that involve ungodly behavior, his attitude towards sin in his own life will be greatly affected. Television can desensitize its viewers to the wrongness of sin and stifle the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Drama has the power to manipulate the emotion and alter what people accept as fact. And that's why movies and shows with drama in it pull you in and you're, you're so engrossed in the storyline because drama can manipulate how you view fact. The result of opening up your mind, spirit, and emotions to this is sin becomes easily justified, rationalized, minimized, and eventually overlooked. Entertainment caters to every appetite of the flesh. It constantly presents the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. That's why it's important to be proactive and obey the scripture that says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the works of those who fall away. It, is, it shall not cling to me. Psalms 101 and 3. Now, not all television is bad. Take a deep breath. If you're watching hockey, you're not, you know, I'm sure it's not desensitizing you. It, it could be. But if you're becoming obsessive with it and all you can think about is Toronto Maple Leafs or I don't watch hockey, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure I got the name right, though. Um, it's not all bad, but we must be discerning and intentional about what we allow into our minds because in the end, it will have a great effect on us. Philippians 4 and 8 in the New King James Version says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, pure, things that are lovely, things that are good of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Some of the stuff out there these days, I don't even know how people sleep at night after watching them. That one was free. Here's the thing. Not only does it threaten to pollute our minds and compromise our values, but it can rob a person of spending quality time with their family and spending time reading the word of God and in prayer. As followers of Christ, our primary calling is service, not self-satisfaction. 
Romans 12 and 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Ever since the fall of man, Adam and Eve, man has had a very real need for spiritual protection. As long as we keep ourselves out of the serpent's domain, there's very little he can do to harm us. Believers get bitten when they frolic in the enemy's territory. And I question doing this, but I'm going to say it anyways, because some of you will pick up on it. If you don't want me following you into fire, don't run into fire. No, nobody? Just my kids? Okay. It's from a movie. Um, but it's like when I read that, I was thinking, I can hear God's voice in my mind echoing that. Believers get bitten when they frolic in the enemy ter enemy's territory as I'm yelling to my children on a walk, get off the neighbor's lawn, that's not your property. Get away from there. It's like that's what he's saying to us. Get away from the enemy territory. You don't belong there. I'm convinced that I'm going to be the old lady in the rocking chair sitting on my deck yelling, get off my lawn, to kids passing by. <laughs> that's the joke between my husband and I. I'm not that nice. Okay, now I'm way off, off the path here. Okay. The only way to attain proper measure of discernment is to make sure we are soaking in the Word of God and saturating our minds with it. It's the only way you're going to be able to discern what is right and wrong and what God wants. Prayer and soak your mind and saturate it with what He is saying. The pressure to conform to this world's mentality is enormous, and I would say now more than ever. Uh, it's basically being shoved down our throats, whether you're ready to chew it or not. And Paul said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. The desire to be entertained is one of the lusts of the flesh the enemy uses to coax believers into his mindset, but there is one that is even greater, and that is covetousness. John describes it as the lust of the eye. It describes, uh, it's the desire to accumulate things this world offers, and it is a powerful force. 2 Corinthians 11 and 3 says, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Over the years, the rise of consumerism and liberal spending has dangerously catered to the deadly sin of covetousness. The practice of buying on credit has lured people out of cautious lifestyles, and the temptation to have it now is overwhelming. When buying on credit became a thing, uh, people started buying things they didn't need or were even actually looking for. Uh, that's when advertisers were able to tap into a powerful human passion, coveting lust. I want that. The spirit of the world is doing the very same thing to us today. Every year, many people find themselves going deeper into debt with the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, according to John 10 and 10. They are locked into the slavery of covetousness. What enslaves them is not debt itself, but rather the love for the things of this world and the easy credit that puts those things into their grasps. 
The sinfulness of coveting is highly emphasized in the Bible. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. There are two Greek words translated as covet. I'm going to butcher these. Eputhemio, which is usually translated as lust or desire, and pleon nectes, which means to be eager for more of something. You didn't know it was Greek, did you? <laughs> the sin of coveting is the act of fixing one's desire upon some object and staying in a lust for it until it is possessed. You become obsessive about that until you get that in your grasp. That's the sin of coveting. It's one of the things, it's one thing to want something, and it's another altogether when a person covets it. Coveting lust is one of the most underrated wickedness in North American lifestyles, and it's not something we have a lot to say about it. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10 says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and perceive themselves with many a pang. The devotion to money, not money itself, but the love of it, the devotion to it is what's dangerous because it causes people to wander away from the faith. In the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus describes four types of different state of the heart. Prince of covenant whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entered in and choked the word and it became unfruitful. Mark 4, 18 and 19. The Lord gives us a picture of someone who has just come to him. Most people who have been born again experience that amazing first love when thoughts of Jesus completely fill their mind. He was their everything. Yet along the way, the desires for other things entered in and choked the word. Coveting lust. Wanting something for self. The thorns... Although the person may remain faithful to church attendance, he has wandered away from the faith in his heart. And like the Laodiceans in Revelations 3, we can imagine our spiritual lives are going well. But what does the Lord see? The greed of materialism can eat away at our spiritual substance if we don't take regular inventory of our hearts. And usually, like, I know inventory time... For my parents' store, like, that's just a big hassle. It's time-consuming, and you, you got to sit and go over everything in detail. And sometimes that with our hearts often, taking regular inventory of what is going on in there. How close, how far am I to the Lord right now? When was the last time I heard his voice? Can I still feel his convicting power? When Satan offered Jesus the kingdom and glory of the world, of this world in the wilderness, in return for worship... He exposed the true longing of his heart. The devil passionately craves the exaltation that belongs to God alone. Maybe you're unaware, but the enemy of your soul has put the same offer on the table for you. A little compromise here, a little com no big deal. I'll be fine. Ever hear the sentence, the devil is in the details? Hypocrisy is the devil's delight. 
And Paul, knowing how intoxicating this spirit could be, warns us in 1 Timothy 6 and 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. I know this message has been heavy, and it's Bible study, and you're the faithful ones who show up. And I know that I've given many warnings. Please understand, the word of God is not designed to condemn, but it, do, it is designed to convict. And conviction is a good thing, because conviction leads us to repentance, and repentance leads us closer to God. I hope you hear our heart when we stand here between the gap for you and your family because we are held accountable for what we teach or fail to teach you. It's not always easy to get up here and teach things that we don't want to talk about either. We don't, but it's not our words. It's God's word. And one day, our pastor will have to stand before God and answer for how he led the flock. But be encouraged, because God always provides a way out. Despite the deceptive power of materialism, lust, and the pull of this world, we can turn things around. According to God's word and his promises, the one who has entangled himself in the affairs of life can disengage himself. Those who become burdened by the world can be transformed by the renewing of his mind. It will require commitment, discipline, and a new perspective on life in Christ, but it is well worth the effort to detach ourselves from the tug of the world. And a real change of heart always begins with repentance. Maybe it's time to get real with ourselves and the Lord and lay it all out before him. How long has it been since we've truly spent time alone with God, studying what the Bible has to say about greed, Let's allow the Lord to expose every root and every aspect of covetousness he may find in us, changing our perspective about God and believing him as the provider and the God of blessings will help. You'll be amazed at, what the, at the ways that the Lord will bless you if you allow him the opportunity. Make the things you want a matter of prayer. Have you prayed about it? I've prayed about the smallest and to some probably the most insignificant things before, but it has always impacted me in the most significant and magnificent ways when he did answer those prayers. Another way to detach is by simplifying our lifestyle. We might be amazed to discover how little we really need concerning materialistic things. I want all the shiny things. We don't need all the shiny things. Um... And lastly, Jesus commands believers to lay up treasures in heaven. Every kind deed, every intercessory prayer, every moment of true worship, and every act of selflessness are all being translated into heaven with your name on it. We can deposit as much as we want into our eternal savings account because staying in love with Jesus, our first love, is truly a love that lasts. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.